So good to be with you. Would you grab a Bible and turn to Mark chapter 8 as we continue our study in this fabulous book of the Bible. If you're new here, welcome. So glad that you're with us. And again, this is just a chance we have every week to open up the Word of God and study it together and see what God would have to say to us this morning. So Mark chapter 8, I'll start reading for us in verse 11. It'll be on the screen if you need that as well. It says this, The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had, excuse me, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come gathered as your church to worship you and now to turn our eyes and ears to what you have spoken through scripture. We pray, God, that you would open our ears and eyes, help us to see, help us to understand by your spirit, help us to make sense of these words and and see how these truths impact our lives today. We give you this time. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're going to start off by doing something a little different today. I don't think I've ever done this before, actually. We're going to watch a short video clip, and it's uh, a way to participate. You guys are going to have a part in this. What you do, you'll see the video is going to ask you to pay attention closely, and you're going to watch the team in white pass around a basketball. Okay, and your job is to track the number of passes that they make. Okay, you got to focus, track, and count the number of passes that the team in white makes. Now, if you've done this before or something like it, don't help other people out who have never experienced this. Okay, it's a challenge. Make sure to do it well, and then we're going to talk about it afterwards. I think we're ready to play the video, all right? The monkey business illusion. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. The correct answer is 16 passes. Did you spot the gorilla? (laughs) For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. 
If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it. But did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. When you're looking for a gorilla, All right. you often miss other unexpected events. We go ahead and stop it there. How many of you missed the gorilla? Some, some honest people. Okay. Thank you. Isn't that crazy? It's there. Now, uh, how many of you had seen this before and you knew the gorilla was coming? And did you guys see the curtain change color? No. See? Okay. Interesting. This is a, a test that's been done over and over again, and it's called the selective attention test. And they realized through doing this that people, although things are right in front of them, if they're not looking for them, they miss them. They don't see them, even though something as obvious as a large gorilla walking on stage and beating its chest and walking across, you'd think you would see that no matter what, but if your attention is elsewhere, you're not really looking, then you can miss it. It's fascinating. Now, the same thing happens in our spiritual lives. The same thing happens with spiritual truths. We have a tendency to miss things. Even though Jesus or the Lord or the Lord has shown them to us, sometimes we don't truly see them. We're blind to the things that he's trying to communicate to us, although they're right under our nose. And we see such a situation in the passage that we read to start this morning. You see, Jesus is interacting with these two different groups of people. We have the Pharisees and the disciples, and they demonstrate two very different ways to miss the point. We see that they're both blind, but they're blind in different ways. And so let's look first at the Pharisees, this group that we've become all too familiar with over the weeks as we've walked through the Gospel of Mark, this group of religious leaders in the first century that were committed to the rules, committed to obedience, harsh legalism we saw was their way of doing things. Jesus calls them hypocrites. He's identified that they have this external concern about obedience and looking godly in a certain way, but Internally, their hearts are far from the Lord, Jesus says. And we see them in verse 11 approach Jesus. You see it in the passage. The Pharisees came and they began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. Now, the Greek word here for test is not a neutral, kind of open, honest, objective test that he could pass uh, this word could be translated tempting him. They came to tempt him, to try and make him stumble. They wanted to discredit him. They didn't want him to pass this test. And they're asking or even demanding a sign from heaven, something directly from God that would prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was who he said he was. Now, if you've been here for any number of weeks or you've read through the book of Mark before, you notice how ironic a request that is, how odd 
that is, as a demand, because we've seen Jesus do incredible things before. He's shown himself in powerful ways already. And so it makes us think, why in the world would these guys be coming to Jesus saying, prove it. Jump through these hoops, Jesus, we have not seen enough. I mean, were the miraculous healings not enough for them? The the powerful exorcisms, were those not enough? Jesus walking on water and calming the storm and feeding thousands with just a few pieces of bread, was that all not enough for them? Be like going up to Michael Phelps and finding him at his Olympic training facility, saying, Michael, walk up to him with your clipboard, your stopwatch, and you say, I've heard you're a good swimmer, and maybe I've seen a few things, but I need you to prove it to me. I don't quite believe it yet, and so we're going to do some time trials right here. I want you to jump in the pool for me. I'll be tracking it with my little stopwatch. I got my clipboard to write down your times. He'd look at you and say, were, were all the gold medals not enough for you? Is me being the, the greatest Olympian in the history of the United States not enough for you? Have you not seen enough already? You come and ask me to jump through these hoops for you? So Jesus responds in verse 12. He sighed deeply. Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Imagine he sighs from, from disappointment, from maybe frustration, saying, I'm not going to give you another sign. You've seen enough. You've seen enough to know who I am. I've revealed myself for you enough for you to be able to make a decision. And so, no, I'm not going to play your games. I'm not going to jump through your hoops. And he leaves. And so we see in these Pharisees this kind of aggressive or deliberate blindness. They don't want to see. They don't want to believe, although they've been shown enough to see that this Jesus is unlike anyone in the history of the world, they don't want to believe that he is truly who he says he is. You see, because if they do believe that, if they do recognize truly who Jesus is, it'll have some pretty profound implications for their lives. It'll mean something about their cultural influence, their power. They have a lot to lose. They have to change the way they make decisions. They have to change the way they spend their money. They have to change the way they spend their time. It would change everything for these people. And so they didn't want to believe. And so they used this demand for a sign as a way to kind of keep Jesus at arm's length. And say, we're not quite sure about you yet. Now, we should be careful when we apply this truth to today. Because it'd be possible to over-apply this and think that everyone who has not come to faith in Christ yet is somehow like the Pharisees here, thinking that anyone who questions, anyone who doubts, anyone who wants to study and read and find out a little bit more before they make a decision that they're some kind of troublemaker or that they're just playing games. That's not the case. It seems that there's a difference between honest, humble, seeking and asking questions and desiring to know more about the Lord. There's a difference between that and this sort of proud, demanding, 
aggressive, lacking the desire to believe approach. Forcing God to do things on your terms. God, bow to me. Come meet me where I'm at. Meet my standards of things. I have a friend named uh, Tony who spends a lot of time talking with non-Christians. He has a website, actually, where they engage in apologetics-type questions all the time. And this week I was talking with him, and I kind of asked him about this passage and the way that he sees it playing out as he interacts with people. And he confirmed that same thing, that, you know what, when I'm talking with people, there's a night and day difference between those that are truly desiring answers, those who maybe say, I want to believe, I would like for this to be true, but I'm not sure yet. Could you help me understand? So there's a night and day difference between those people and then those he interacts with who really don't want to believe the gospel. And he answers their questions and answers their objections over and over again, and they keep him at arm's length. They keep playing games. They really don't want to know the Lord. So there's a difference. And so we see these Pharisees come asking for proof, but we're reminded that they have plenty of proof. They've seen enough already. And so Jesus, by demanding their sign, is essentially saying, you have all that you need to believe in me. It's right in front of you. Which I would argue is the same for us today. We have all that we need to believe. We see that God has given us his word. He's spoken to us through Scripture. The very words of Jesus we can come and read and and understand. He's given us a beautiful, incredible world around us that speaks of his power, his creative abilities. It speaks of the Lord's wonder and amazement at his grace and strength that we see in the created world. He's given us testimonies. I'm sure we know people maybe in our families or our own lives, and we've seen how the gospel can impact a human heart, how the gospel can change and transform a family, can inform, uh, excuse me, transform an individual's life. We've seen story after story of this take place. And we've seen scholars and historians and philosophers from a Christian perspective come and show that the scriptures are reliable, historically, that faith in Christ is rational and compelling. More now than ever before, we have good reason to believe what we find in Scripture. And so today, in in light of this, we can realize that the answers are there for us if we're willing to see them. Now, the Pharisees have this kind of aggressive blindness. They don't want to believe, but we see a, a second group of people Jesus interacts with And they're blind, but it's in a different way. We see the disciples. Verse 15, it continues. He says, Be careful, Jesus warned them as he's talking to his disciples. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this with one another and said, It's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And he says, don't you remember? Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. 
And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? And so in, in summary, Jesus says, guys, you're missing the point. You don't understand And what he's trying to do for them is he warns them about the Pharisees and and King Herod, and he warns them about the spread of their unbelief, that these groups don't want to believe. They're not trusting in God. They stand opposed to the work that God is trying to do in the world. And he says, beware of the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees, which was a a way of speaking figuratively about how their teaching or their influence had a a tendency to spread the way yeast or leaven would spread throughout a loaf of bread. But they miss the figurative description. They hear yeast or leaven and they're like, oh, he must be talking about bread, food. Did somebody mention food? Huh? And they don't get the deeper reality that he's trying to point them to. And so in verse 16 and 7, it says, they say, and then Jesus repeats that they're talking about the fact that they have no bread. They're concerned about a lack of bread and being hungry, and he's concerned about their lack of faith. How they miss the point. And so what he does, you see in eight, verses 18 to 21, is he reminds them these miracles that he performed. He's like, I did this miracle providing food for the 5,000. You remember that? We had some leftovers, right? Right, yeah. Good point, Jesus. And then with the 4,000, we fed them miraculously and we had plenty of leftovers, right? Right, Jesus. Yeah, okay. Good point. He's like, don't, don't you see that you don't need to be so worried about bread right now? Don't you see that I can provide for us food more than we would ever need? And you continue to worry on these surface level truths. And you guys are missing it. They're blind. But again, it's different from the Pharisees. It's not aggressive. It's more clunky, more accidental almost. You kind of feel sorry for these guys that they've been traveling with Jesus and ministering with Jesus for some time now, hearing amazing things, seeing amazing things, watching him, and yet they still don't quite get it. They're still concerned about kind of surface level temporary issues rather than the deeper matters of the heart and the deeper matters of spirituality that Jesus is trying to communicate to them. Now, I hope that this picture of the disciples is encouraging to us. I think we can read this and I think it should maybe warm our heart in a a special way that we're reminded that even those who were walking with Jesus Even those day in and day out who physically were right next to Jesus while he was on earth, even they were a little bit, well, like us. Slow on the uptake, forgetful, easily distracted. I mean, they got food in their teeth and toilet paper stuck to their shoes as well. You know, these guys weren't perfect. And so we can look to that and say, wow, Lord, I see a lot of myself in that. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your patience that you you stuck with these guys despite this. But as we look at the disciples here in their blindness, it should also be a warning to us because the point is to not be like the disciples in that way. The point would be to see or to truly understand the things that the Lord is trying to show us and not be blind. 
Because it would be so easy to sit back and say, wow, let's laugh at the disciples, poke fun. They were so slow. But the real question should be, where are we missing the point? Where are we slow to pick up on what Jesus is trying to show us? Where are we so blind and distracted by temporary things? You know, I think about the way that we honestly sometimes worry so much about any number of things, but finances, food, health, any number of things that that matter. We fail to remember the fact that the Lord cares for us, that he holds our lives in his hands, our lives and our futures and our eternities. Sometimes we forget those truths while we're so distracted by the temporary fretting day in and day out. Or we often fail to spend as much time in prayer or as much time in the Word as we would like to, and yet we find time during the week to spend hours on Netflix and watching sports. And as I say this, I'm talking to myself here. We want to be in the Word more. We want to be in prayer more. And yet we're so distracted by entertainment or TV or temporary things. Not that, again, that those things are bad, but when our focus is there, rather on the deeper things, the kingdom of God, the work that God is trying to do in our lives and in our community, we have a tendency to miss it. You know, sometimes we get more concerned about our external appearance, how we're coming off to people, or our own uh, political agendas, and we let those things really take our focus rather than the kingdom of God, rather than the work that God is trying to do, showing that it's possible for us to sit in church week after week, to study scripture regularly, and still miss the point sometimes. And so these disciples are a warning. Jesus says, do you guys not understand? We, we read on, and it, it's no accident that as the passage continues after these two examples of blindness, right? The Pharisees' blindness and the disciples' blindness, we see a man that is physically blind. Verse 22, the very next verse, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, and they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. And so again, right as we see these examples of spiritual blindness, we now see a man that is physically, literally blind. He cannot see. It's no accident that these accounts come right after each other. Jesus takes this man outside of the village and he he spits again, much like last week, and touches this man, showing compassion in his touch and in his care. And then we see something rather odd. We see a two-part healing. You notice that? Rather than healing this man all at once, like, poof, you can see him now, there's kind of this two-stage thing going on. After his initial touch, the man says, yeah, I can see, but I see people, they look like trees, and so it's kind of this blurry vision, it seems like. He can't fully see, his sight is not yet fully restored, and yet he can see more than he did before. 
Then Jesus touches him a second time, and that's when we see it say emphatically that his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And so it leaves us to wonder, why? Why here do we see this two-part miracle? This miracle with two stages in the healing? I mean, certainly he could have healed the man all at once, like we've seen any number of times in the Gospels. That's usually the way it happens. And so why this odd sequence of events? Seems like the best explanation for it is given the context, all that's going on around the passage before these verses and after these verses about sight and blindness and sight needing to be restored, it seems that this man's healing is in some way also symbolic for what's going on with the disciples. It's a, it's a parable acted out in real life. Because we see his sight is restored, but it's gradual. It's unfolding. And the point is not that the disciples' sight is being restored in two distinct phases, two and only two. The point is just a gradual unfolding of understanding where these disciples and us today go from blindness to sight. Sometimes that is a process where it's more like a dimmer switch than it is an on-off switch. As we spend more time with Jesus, sometimes the dimmer switch is turned up gradually. I know talking with people, sometimes that's how they would explain their coming to faith. Yes, there was a definitive line where they crossed from death to life and put their faith in Christ, but sometimes the way they describe it is it was like a dimmer switch. They spent some time with the Lord. They started reading Scripture. They started going to church. It wasn't quite there, but more and more they started to see And so I think that's what we see this healing in two parts demonstrating or communicating. And so my question for us then is, do we leave room in our church for for people like that? For people like the disciples who are in process, who are growing, who maybe need some more time with the Lord to really get it. You know, I think sometimes we are so quick to cast people off or to move on from people and say, ah, they're not quite getting it yet. I mean, we kick people to the curb quicker than the Lord does. And we see Jesus sticks with these disciples as they're in process, as the the sight in their eyes is being restored. I don't know about you, I can look back at my own story, my life, and look back at my former self, where I was years ago, the things that I said and the way that I carried myself, even some of the things that I believed. And I shared a bit of that with you last week about how I was a little little Pharisee. I was a little punk, overzealous, high school, junior higher and high schooler, and how the Lord really softened me and taught me and brought me along. But I look back at who I used to be and I say, Lord, thank you for being patient with me. Thank you for being gracious with me. Thank you for bringing me along and not just casting me out, even when my my sight was there, but it was small. I needed to grow. Thank you, Lord, for sticking with me. Maybe you can relate to that as part of your own story. And the key here is that Jesus is the one that gives sight. 
It's the touch of Jesus that restores this man's vision. And so for us today, it's, it's time with the Lord. It's the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God at work in our lives and in our hearts that, that helps us see, that changes us, that teaches us, that grounds us in the truths of the faith and the truths of Scripture. Now, after this man's sight is restored physically, what do we see? We see this shining moment of the disciples in verse 27. Jesus continues on with them. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? It's interesting that after the blindness of the Pharisees and the blindness of the disciples, then there's sight restored to this physically blind man. And now Jesus is going to see if there's sight restored for his disciples. If they can see these spiritual truths. And the hype of Jesus, this healer, this miracle worker is spreading around the region. And so he asked them, guys, what are people saying about me? really interesting question, a question that's still quite relevant today. Jesus says, what are people saying about me? What do people believe about me? Verse 28, they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, uh, one of the prophets. You're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. If you remember this gruesome beheading we talked about on New Year's Day, Some say you're this powerful prophet, you're John the Baptist, come back, or you're Elijah, a significant Old Testament figure that many Jews believed was going to return in some way to usher in the kingdom of God. So they say, yeah, maybe you're Elijah, or maybe one of the other prophets, you're a new prophet that has come. So you notice that their answers are, well, you're someone significant, you're important, but they didn't exactly say the right answer of who he really is. And, you know, I thought about how people would answer this question today. Who do people say that I am? What do people today think about Jesus? And so I went to one of the best sources for truth that there is, the internet, and I found some videos. It was people on YouTube that went around uh, to big public places like Times Square, college campuses, things like that, and they were just going around asking people, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Or, or who is Jesus? And people answered, people after people. And it, it was interesting to see what they said. They said things like, well, again, he's a, a good guy. He was a, a good moral teacher. Maybe things we've, we've heard before, right? He, he taught people about love. He, he taught people to forgive. Um, he inspired his followers to change the world for the better, um, any number of good things like that. It was all, honestly, uh, positive or, or neutral. Maybe they didn't know. Most people knew. And they just said it was something positive. But no one was like, oh, Jesus, like, he robbed 7-Elevens and beat up old women and, like, took money from people. You know, no, no one said things like that. They all said, well, he's generally a good guy, did some good things, and that's where they would leave it. Maybe not for everyone, you know, said some good things. If it works for you, cool, but not necessarily for everybody. You know, things like that is what people said. I think that's, uh, the videos largely did a good job of representing where people are at today with Jesus out in the broader culture, you know? Yeah, good guy, did some good things. If it works for you, cool. Um, But then Jesus gets personal with his disciples. 
He asks, what are people saying out there? And then you see in verse 29, drives it home a little bit closer and says, who do you say that I am? What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? People out there might be saying this or that, but what about you? Now, you might not know this yet about the book of Mark, but these verses that we're looking at are really a a turning point in the whole gospel. There's 16 chapters in the book of Mark. This is the end of chapter 8. It's roughly the midway point. And as you study the book, you'll see that it's, it's broken up pretty clearly into two distinct pieces. There's the first eight chapters that we've seen, and then it takes a turn here. And so this is kind of a a summary, kind of a a climax, if you will, that the whole book has been building up to this question, who is Jesus? That's what the whole first half of the book of Mark has been about. And so I imagine as the disciples are thinking in that moment how they are to answer that question, some of the things from their time with Jesus will be running through their mind. And so we can, like them, think back on what we've seen so far on chapter 1 where Jesus comes on the scene and he announces the kingdom of God is at hand. And he calls people to repent and he invites these disciples to follow him and he heals the sick. He drives out demons and he cleanses lepers. And then in chapters 2 and 3, he forgives sins and he heals this paralyzed man. He confronts the Pharisees. He trains and sends out his disciples. Then in chapter 4, he teaches more about the kingdom of God. How it's like a mustard seed. How it's like a, a sower who went out and scattered seed on the ground. It's like a growing seed. And then in chapter 4, he calms the storm. And then in chapter 5, he heals this woman, remember, with a chronic illness. And he raises this man's daughter from the dead. Miraculously brings her back to life. Then in chapter 6, he feeds the crowd of 5,000. He walks on water. Chapter 7, he corrects the Pharisees and confronts them on their teaching some more. And he talks about how we need new hearts. And then he heals more people. And now we come to the end of chapter 8 with all of that in mind, with all of those truths building in the hearts of of the disciples, where it gets to the point in light of all of this, who do you say I am? Peter answers in verse 29. You are the Messiah. He says, you're the Messiah. Your translation might say, you are the Christ. It's a word that means anointed one. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are the hope of the world. You are the true king. You are the savior. And this proclamation again captures the thought of the whole half of Mark that we've seen so far that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king. He's the one that the world has been waiting for. And he brings the good news of the gospel that God himself came to us. He came to save and to rescue. 
to forgive us for our sins, to die in our place, to give us new life and a relationship with God, rescuing us from death. And the good news is that as He comes, His kingdom is expanding on earth as it is in heaven. He's healing His broken world. And so the disciples see that Jesus is not just a prophet announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king. He is the focus and the center and all the hopes of the world and God's redemptive plans for all of history are wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Amen. They get it. They see You'll notice right after this verse, in in verse 30, Jesus says, you're right. Now don't tell anybody. Which is kind of confusing. And we've seen this throughout Mark, if you've been tracking along with us, these places where he does these miracles or does these things, and he says, keep it down. It's a little confusing. Why would he do that? So I wanted to address that briefly. It seems that this notion of the Messiah of being the king of Israel, would be so charged, it would have so much meaning wrapped up in it that it could be easily misunderstood. That if that news just spread like wildfire, like we see it doing, frankly, even though he says not to say anything, it continues to spread, that it'd be easily misunderstood. People would think that the Messiah was this, this military leader, this, this king who would bring the sword and overthrow the Romans and punish the enemies of Israel and establish an earthly kingdom and an earthly reign. But we see as the gospel unfolds that that's not how Jesus came. He didn't come bearing a sword. He came to bear his cross and to suffer and die for the sins of the world. And so while the Jews could get so hyped up with this Messiah figure, this king, it would have all these connotations of military force and power. So he says, guys, don't go spreading that until you really see the full picture of who I am. Until you really see that the Messiah came to bear the cross. I want you to hold out on spreading this message. And so we see eventually, at the end of the book with the resur- or, excuse me, the death of Christ on the cross and then the resurrection, the disciples do finally get the full picture. They do finally see, but in the moment for that time, he's trying to manage people as to not uh, mislead them, really. Now, the last piece I want us to see about this is that it's no mistake that this dialogue took place at Caesarea Philippi. You notice that detail? As he asked the disciples this question, they're in the villages surrounding Caesarea Philippi, which was a region a good distance to the north. They had to take a good hike to get up there. And this was a place that was known for the worship of idols. In the past, Baal was worshipped there. Then a god named Pan, worshipped by the Greeks. And then in the time of Christ, it was a stronghold of emperor worship, where people would worship Caesar. And so it's here, in this region known for idolatry, known for worshiping many different gods, it's here 
that we see the first pronouncement of Jesus as the Messiah. This is the first time we see through human words, through a human voice, someone see that Jesus is the Messiah. That has not happened throughout the book so far. And it's here we see this revelation of who he is. And the significance ought to be clear to us. There are no rivals. There are no rivals to the one true king. It's here in Caesarea Philippi, amidst all kinds of idolatry and worship of different gods and the emperor and false gods, it's there that Jesus first helps his disciples see that he is the one true king, that his name is above and over all of the rest. It's a very strong claim that he is God and these others are not. Which is why it simply will not do to say that Jesus is just a good guy or a teacher, one among many, good for you, not good for me, whatever you want. He does not leave that option open to us. Here he's making a statement. He is the Messiah. He's the only way to be saved, the only way to be forgiven, the only king worthy of our allegiance. I was talking to a a pastor friend a couple weeks ago, and he was telling me a bit about what was going on at his church, and they were seeing growth, and it was exciting for them. And he talked about this one woman who started attending their church. And she used to go to a, a Unitarian Universalist church, which you're not familiar with that, basically a place where kind of a hodgepodge of different spiritualities, different beliefs kind of all thrown together, kind of whatever you want to believe is fine. And they'd have, you know, in their worship, worship services, they'd have kind of different readings and from all kinds of different backgrounds and faiths. And it was, uh, that's the kind of place it was. And so this woman stopped going to a church like that and started going to uh, my friend's church, which was a church that preached the Bible and preached the the gospel of who Jesus is. And so this pastor said, why, what brought you here? You know, why did you make that change? And this woman explained that she went to this place of worship, this Unitarian Universalist church, and they'd have various readings from different faiths and different backgrounds, but she said that when they read from the Bible, when they talked about Jesus, when they read the words of Jesus, whenever that would come up, her heart sang. She said, my heart would sing when the name of Jesus was mentioned, when they would talk about Jesus. And so I said, I have to know more about this Jesus because something is happening in my heart when I hear about him that doesn't happen with anything else. So I need to go find out more about who this Jesus is. And so she started attending my friend's church, started growing and seeking and seeing who this Jesus really is. She saw he's unlike any other. The message of the gospel and the love of gra- and grace of God in Christ is unlike anything else. And she started to see what Peter saw here. Jesus, you're the Messiah. Jesus, it's you. It's only you. And so that's what we see this End of chapter 8, bringing up for us the person and identity 
of Christ. And it really points us to a decision as he says, who do you say I am? What about you? We might be tempted to avoid the question, to push it off, to avoid making a decision. Lots of people think lots of things about Jesus. Who's to say? Who's right? But here in the text, there's this pointed, inescapable question. What about you? I don't care what your friends say. I don't care what your parents say. It's not about what your mom says or or your grandma or your peers. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? I hope that we would answer how Peter does here. Jesus, you're the Messiah. Jesus, you're the King. Jesus, you're the Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it challenges us. It convicts us. The way that above all else, it points us to you, Jesus. You as our Messiah, our Savior, our King, the one we've been waiting for, the hope of the world. Jesus, we worship you today. Help us, Lord, have faith. Help us trust you. Help us walk with you. Keep us from blindness and distraction. God, we pray these things for your glory, for our good, for the good of your world. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.